Book One, Chapter Four, of My Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My Antonia by Willa Cather. Book One, The Shemirdas, Chapter Four. On the afternoon of that same Sunday, I took my first long ride on my pony. Under Otto's direction. After that, dude, I went twice a week to the post office, six miles east of us, and I saved the men a good deal of time by writing on errands to our neighbors. When we had to borrow anything, or to send about word that there would be preaching at the sod schoolhouse, I was always the messenger. Formerly, folks attended to such things after working hours. All the years that have passed have not dimmed my memory of that first glorious autumn. The new country lay open before me. There were no fences in those days, and I could choose my own way over the grass uplands, trusting the pony to get me home again. Sometimes I followed the sunflower bordered roads. Fuchs told me that the sunflowers were introduced into that country by the Mormons. That at the time of the persecution, when they left Missouri and struck out into the wilderness to find a place where they could worship God in their own way, the members of the first exploring party, crossing the plains to Utah, scattered sunflower seeds as they went. The next summer, when the long trains of wagons came through with all the women and children, they had the sunflower trail to follow. I believe that botanists do not confirm Jake's story. But insists that the sunflower was native to those plains. Nevertheless, the legend has stuck in my mind, and sunflower-bordered roads always seem to me the roads to freedom. I used to love to drift along the pale yellow cornfields, looking for the damp spots one sometimes found at their edges, where the smart weeds soon turned a rich copper color. And the narrow brown leaves hung curled like cocoons about the swollen joints of the stem. Sometimes, I went south to visit our German neighbors, and to admire their catalpa grove, or to see the big elm tree that grew up out of the deep crack in the earth, and had a hawk's nest in its branches. Trees were so rare in that country, and they had to make such a hard fight to grow, that we used to feel anxious about them and visit them as if they were persons. It must have been the scarcity of detail in that tawny landscape that made detail so precious. Sometimes I rode north to the prairie dog town to watch the brown earth owls fly home in the late afternoon, or go down to their nests underground with the dogs. Antonia Shemirda liked to go with me, and we used to wonder a great deal about these birds of subterranean habit. We had to be on our guard there. For rattlesnakes were always lurking about, they came to pick up an easy living among the dogs and owls, which were quite defenceless against them. Took possession of their comfortable houses and ate their eggs and puppies. We felt sorry for the owls. It was always mournful to see them come flying home at sunset and disappear under the earth. But after all, we felt, winged things who would live like that must be rather degraded creatures. The dog town was a long way from any pond or creek. Otto Fuchs said he had seen populous dog towns in the desert 
where there was no surface water for fifty miles. He insisted that some of the holes must go down to water, nearly two hundred feet hereabouts. Antonia said she didn't believe it, that the dogs probably lapped up the dew in the early morning, like the rabbits. Antonia had opinions about everything, and she was soon able to make them known. Almost every day she came running across the prairie to have her reading lesson with me. Mrs. Shemirda grumbled, but realized it was important that one member of the family should learn English. When the lesson was over, we used to go up to the watermelon patch behind the garden. I split the melons with an old corn knife, and we lifted out the hearts, and ate them with juice trickling through our fingers. The white Christmas melons we did not touch, but we watched them with curiosity. They were to be picked late, when the hard frosts had set in, and put away for winter use. After weeks on the ocean, the Shemirdas were famished for fruit. The two girls would wander for miles along the edge of the cornfields, hunting for ground cherries. Antonia loved to help grandmother in the kitchen, and to learn about cooking and housekeeping. She would stand beside her, watching her every movement. We were willing to believe that Mrs. Shemirda was a good housewife in her own country, but she managed poorly under new conditions. The conditions were bad enough, certainly. I remember how horrified we were at the sour, ashy gray bread she gave her family to eat. She mixed her dough, we discovered, in an old tin peck measure that Cradgick had used about the barn. When she took the paste out to bake it, she left smears of dough sticking to the sides of the measure, put the measure back on the shelf behind the stove, and let this residue ferment. The next time she made bread, she scraped this sour stuff down into the fresh dough to serve as yeast. During those first months the Shemirdas never went to town. Cradgick encouraged them in the belief that in Black Hawk they would somehow be mysteriously separated from their money. They hated Cradgick, but they clung to him because he was the only human being with whom they could talk, or from whom they could get information. He slept with the old man and the two boys in the dugout barn, along with the oxen. They kept him in their hole and fed him for the same reason that the prairie dogs and the brown owls housed rattlesnakes because they did not know how to get rid of him. End of chapter 4